think I'll just use this stand if that's all right. I want to be a little closer to you. I'm just curious, how many watched the inauguration either on TV or online yesterday? Probably a lot of us. I don't promote politics uh, from the pulpit, but I just want to say, however you voted, whether you were excited yesterday or whether you were just fearful, um, crushed, discouraged, you're welcome in this place. Amen? And I tell you what, I like, one thing that I noticed, I'll make one observation. As I looked out on the crowd, or as the cameras panned out on the crowd, I noticed it wasn't a very diverse crowd. But as I look out today in this congregation, it's so good to see the the wonderful diversity that we have here. Amen? It is a blessing. We have a beautiful congregation. We are so glad that everybody is here. Lord, we're reminded again that we need you. We want you. Please speak now in Jesus' name. Amen. The story was told a long time ago about a time in England when England's king died but had no apparent successor to the throne. The country was in turmoil because how do we choose a new king? The king didn't have any sons that we can find, so what do we do? Naturally, all the lords and and knights began to go back and forth saying, I should be king. No, I should be king because of these reasons. There was battle back and forth as to who should be king, arguments back and forth. But nobody could decide. The country was without a leader. They were falling into despair and disorder. And finally, a system was set up by a man named Merlin. He put a stone or on top of a stone in a churchyard, he set an anvil, and in the anvil was a sword. And on the, the, the blade of the sword, near the top, near the handle, was written these words, whoever pulls the sword out is rightful king over England. News got out about this test. Oh, you just got to pull the sword out? Anybody could do that. So knights and lords and people, great and small, strong and weak, took their turn trying to, trying to muscle the sword out. Well, he couldn't get the sword out because he's a weakling. Let me try. The next man would try. And every time someone tried and failed, the country became more and more discouraged because it became obvious that nobody was qualified. Nobody was worthy. Nobody was able to pull the sword out of the stone. Time passed and the sword became forgotten. It became just something there that people passed by and didn't even notice. Until one day, you're familiar with the story, until one day, a young teenager about the age of 15 was brought to the stone again by Merlin. A crowd gathered around, and and this teenager's brother thought, well, let me try first to pull the sword out. And even after all those years, the sword was still as stuck fast as it ever was. But when Arthur, this teenager, stepped up and grabbed the sword, and he started to lift, started to pull, something different happened. It started to move. Are our eyes seeing it correctly? It's starting to raise, and pretty soon he had the sword out, completely removed, and everybody burst into applause, and they said, long live King Arthur. 
He was the only one who was worthy, the only one who was able and capable of removing the sword. Of course, it's just a legend. But it has some deep significance that is based in a solid reality. I'd like to tell you the true story this morning, if I might. It starts back in the beginning, as good stories do, when God created the heavens and the earth. And in the beginning, God created two people. You know their names, Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were given rulership and authority. God was the king of the earth. But in Genesis 1:28, it says he gave them dominion. He gave them power. He gave them authority over the earth, not only to tend the garden, but to, to be in control of the world and the animals and the life here on this planet. And that's how God intended it to be. But of course, you've read Genesis 3. You're familiar with the story where they were tricked, seduced, led into a temptation at that tree. They both ate. And in so doing, it was as if they were taking off that crown of authority that God had entrusted to them and they gave it to another. Their authority over the world was usurped by the great usurper, also known as Satan, that ancient serpent of old, as John calls him in Revelation chapter 12. In that moment of sin, the rulers of the world became the ones who were ruled by another master. The masters of the world had become mastered by someone else. Now there was a new ruler, a new authority in our world, and an authority that was bent on destroying and causing as much pain as possible. Thus began, began Lucifer's reign of terror, the, the devil's claim to the authority of the world. We pick up the story again in the, in the book of Job, Job chapter 1, verse 6, and we see there a heavenly council. It says, when the sons of God came together, all of a sudden, Lucifer, Satan, comes striding into that heavenly council, and God says, where have you come from? He says, oh, I've come from walking to and fro, back and forth, across the face of the earth. Many scholars believe that this meeting was actually a meeting of the, the leaders of the different planets that God has created with life on them. And by showing up to this council, the devil was saying, I'm the leader of planet Earth. Adam's not here. Adam can't be here. Adam's dead. But I'm here. In fact, I was just strolling out in the back 40 of my planet, my kingdom, my world. Now we fast forward in history and we look and we see a mountaintop. And we see two figures standing on top of that mountain. The one figure, even though he's been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he's tired, but he still has a look of dignity about him. The other figure is some sort of angelic creature, but there's something that's not quite right about him. And as we zoom in, as we look a little closer, we see that the angelic figure is using grand gestures, sweeping illustrations. He's pointing out things as they look around from this great vantage point. And though he doesn't even have a telescope... It's as if the kingdoms of the world have become magnified and he's pointing out the glories and the riches and the splendor and the powers of the different nations all surrounding this globe. And as we listen closely, we hear those words, if you'll just bow down to me, 
I'll give them all to you because I'm the ruler. If you'll just do this, Matthew chapter 4, I'll give it all to you. And then we hear the authoritative voice of Jesus and he says, get away from me, Satan. It is written. You shall not. You should, the Lord is the only one whom you shall serve. Jesus recognized Satan claims authority and power over this world. In fact, as you go to the Gospels, you go to John chapter 14. You see, Jesus recognizes that, that Satan claims to be the authority in this world. I'll read it to you here. John chapter 14. Jesus said, verse 30, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, but he has no claim on me. Right before Christ's death on that cross, he said, hey, the ruler is about to come, but he doesn't have any authority in my life. I want that to be true for me. How about you? But good news, Jesus also recognized while Satan lay claim to this world, he recognized that his, his term was about to be over. John chapter 12, verse 31, Jesus says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Those long, dark years were about to be over. Jesus is saying, the ruler is about to be cast out. So when did Jesus become ruler again? Of course, Jesus has always been God. But through Adam and Eve's sin, Satan usurped their authority. And Jesus recognized that usurped authority. So when did he become ruler again? I invite you to open up your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Briefly, we want to look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20 through 23. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20 through 23. It says, Which he exerted in Christ, speaking of God's strength, when he raised him from the dead and seated him where? At the right hand. He seated him in this position of power in the heavenly realms. Verse 21, Far above the rule and authority and power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in this present age, but also in the one to come. Verse 22, God placed how many things? All things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in that way. From verse 20, we see it was after Christ was raised from the dead that God again put all things underneath his feet. So sometime at the, or after the ascension, Jesus became once again recognized as king. Amen. Scripture has echoes of this, hints of this, suggestions of this. Before we go to the passage I want to look at a little more closely, I want to go briefly back to the book of Psalms. Go to Psalm chapter 22. Many of the Psalms the New Testament authors recognized were prophecies about Christ. Psalm 22 is a very well-known prophecy of Christ. I think you'll recognize the words. 
from the mouth of Jesus when we get to Psalm 22 and verse 1. Psalm 22 and verse 1, what, what does it say there in your Bible? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where have we heard these words before? Jesus spoke them a long time later, right? Hanging on the cross. This was actually a song. So when Jesus spoke those words, people started thinking about the rest of the song. It's kind of like if I were to say to you, row, row, row your boat, what would you think? Gently down the stream, right? Or some of the younger ones among us, or maybe some of the older ones, if I were to say to you, Hello? Yeah, some of, you, some of you know what I'm saying. It's me, the song. So when you say the first line of a song, the first couple of words from a song, it makes the people think about the rest of the words of the song, right? So Jesus quoted the very first line of Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it was almost as if he was quoting a prophecy about himself. Because look at, uh, look at for example, verse 7, Psalm 22. It says, All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Isn't that what the people were saying about Christ when he was on the cross? Look at verse 16. By the way, verse 15 Jesus was thirsty, right? Verse 15 describes his thirst, his tongue dry in his mouth. Verse 16, dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men have encircled me. They have done what to my hands and feet? Pierced my hands and my feet. This is a messianic prophecy. Verse 17, I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. Verse 18, they divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Pretty powerful. So, so the New Testament writers, they recognized, whoa, maybe David didn't realize what he was writing down, but it was a prophecy about the Messiah. What's very, very interesting is a number of scholars recognize not only Psalm 22, but also see hints in Psalm 23 of the experience of Christ and Psalm 24. If you think about the chronology, Christ dying, being crucified on Friday, and then you look at Psalm 23, which has that... That opening line, the Lord is my shepherd. Well, if someone is your shepherd, what does that make you? It makes you a sheep. It makes you a lamb. Christ was the lamb who went through the valley of the shadow of death there uh, on that weekend. And what's powerful is when we get to Psalm 24. And we just saw in Ephesians that it was after the ascension that once again Christ could claim authority over the world in a way that he couldn't before because of Adam and Eve's sin. And so we get to Psalm 24, looking at verse 1, and it says, the earth is whose? The Lord's. Once again, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all who live in it. What's powerful is when you get to verse 7. Many scholars, many people believe verse 7 is a description of what a conversation that took place as Jesus ascended back to the Father. A call and response kind of deal. Look at verse 7. Imagine Jesus approaching the gates of heaven after his ascension. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? 
Not that they didn't know, but they loved to hear the response. Who's the king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Verse 9, lift up your heads, O ye gates. Lift them up, O ye ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who's the king of glory? Not that they've forgotten, but they just love to hear it, those angelic beings. The answer is given. The Lord Almighty, he is the king of glory. Scripture gives us these suggestions, these hints. But perhaps no place is, is more clear than in the book of Revelation of what that moment looked like, at least partially when Christ again returned to his throne. Go with me to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. If you just glance at Revelation chapter 4, I'd love to read the whole chapter, but we don't have the time for this morning. You can read it later on your own. Chapter 4 is a glorious picture of the throne room in heaven. And I tell you what, they are doing a lot of praising God in that throne room. If you love colors, it is so beautiful in that throne room. All the colors around the throne, these creatures who just never stop praising God day after day, hour after hour. But then we get to this awesome picture in Revelation chapter 5 because the focus changes a little bit and it zooms in. Revelation chapter 5 verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll. In the Greek, it's really actually better at the right hand. But in any case, there's a scroll. It's sitting uh, on this throne. The throne is wide enough for more than one person. That's how the Bible describes thrones. It was more like a couch, uh, at least in the times of John's days. So he's describing something that he's, he's recognizing. A throne with a scroll written on both sides and sealed with seven seals. It's sealed perfectly, seven being a number of perfection. So what is this scroll all about? And then we notice verse 2. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals, to open the scroll. But then the sad reality, but no one in heaven or on earth or even under the earth, nowhere, nobody was found worthy to open the scroll or even look inside. <clears throat> the strong people, the smart people, the powerful angels, doesn't even say that God or the, the God the Father or the Holy Spirit could open this scroll. It's a powerful thought right there. Nobody could open it. But then we get to verse 4. John's response, I wept and wept because nobody was found who was found worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Here in this place where there's nothing but joy and rejoicing and praising God, John falls down and he starts bawling and sobbing because he realizes, boy, this scroll is so important and nobody can open it. Would you like to know what's inside the scroll? So would I. So would I. There's a lot of debate, actually, in the scholarly world, but, but we get to see part of it if you read later, Revelation chapter 6, because it starts to be unsealed. But there's some good ideas we could talk about at a later time if you're interested. 
But it's so important to John that he starts weeping because nobody was found worthy. But then, verse 5. Then one of the elders came to me and said, Do not weep. See the lion, the lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. They did a survey of every being in, in, the, in the entire universe, and finally they found someone. Amen. Jesus arrives, the lion of the tribe of Judah. But notice what happens in the next verse. Verse 6, John hears lion, but what does he actually see? Then I saw a lamb. This is a feature used in, in the book of Revelation where John hears something, and then he sees something different. It's significant, especially when you talk about the 144,000. Talk about that another day. So he sees a lamb looking as though it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and by the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. He came and he took the scroll from the right hand of the one who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of of the saints, and then they sing another song. You are worthy to take the scroll to open its seals because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation, and you have made them to be a kingdom of priests and to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. This is good news, amen? amen. Jesus, at his inauguration, at his ceremony there in the heavenly throne room was pronounced worthy. You know, if Jesus had sinned even just one little sin, he couldn't have opened that scroll. He would have been like Arthur trying to, trying to pull the, the sword out of the thing, and then eh, it, it doesn't go up. There would have been nobody worthy to open the scroll. But because Jesus was faithful in every single aspect of life, he was found worthy. Verse 11, and then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders and in a loud voice they sang, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea, all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. We're just getting a small glimpse, a few ideas about what this ceremony was like, but it sounds like it was awesome. Awesome. Totally moving. Totally amazing. So it was at that moment when Christ again was proclaimed as king. But I got to ask the question in our last bit of time before we close, what difference does it make? Well, John, that was a nice little study, nice little breeze through a few Bible verses about the authority of this world. But what difference does it make? How does it apply to your life and my life today? Because you have bills to pay, you have job issues, you have kids you're trying to raise, you have busy life, you have uh, medical problems things that you're worried about, how does this knowledge impact our life? I'm going to say that there are three 
main ways, and there's probably a lot more, but three ways I'm going to suggest to you this morning that knowing that Christ is king can impact your life right now. You ready for them? <clears throat> Excuse me. Number one, the enthronement of Christ reminds us Jesus is still in control. I don't know what crazy things you're dealing with in your life. I know as I looked on Facebook yesterday, some of my friends were really excited. Some of my friends were really upset. There's a lot of people in this nation that are thinking about what's going to happen to their health care. Am I going to be deported? What's going to happen in our future? There's just a lot of stuff people are dealing with. And it's good to be reminded that Jesus is still on the throne. And the fact that he's on the throne reminds us that he was accepted. His sacrifice was accepted. If he wasn't on the throne now, we would all be lost. Because he wouldn't have been accepted. And we would have no hope whatsoever for salvation. It's good to remember, Jesus is still on the throne. And as you look in the rest of Revelation, you see that he's planning on coming back soon and claiming his kingdom and setting all things in order. The devil is still exercising some of his power right now, but it's coming to a close. Revelation 12 tells us the devil himself realizes that he has but a short time. But the second important thing about the inauguration of Christ is it reminds us, or the, the inauguration was what allowed the Holy Spirit to be poured out on the day of Pentecost. The Bible teaches this very, very clearly. Without the enthronement of Christ, there would have been no day of Pentecost. John chapter 7, verse 39, I'll, I'll read it to you. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who had believed in him were about to receive, for as yet the Holy Spirit had not been given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. The Spirit is about to be poured out, but Christ first has to be glorified. What about Acts chapter 2? Peter, in his sermon there on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2, 32, he, Verses and 33, it says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, right where that scroll was sitting, it says, He received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So Peter recognized the Holy Spirit was poured out because Jesus is now sitting at the right hand of God. Boy, there's some good things you can read in the book Acts of the Apostles. And here's a, a, a paragraph for you. It says, Christ's ascension to heaven was the signal to his followers that they were about to receive the Holy Spirit. For this, they were to wait before they entered upon their work. Remember those 10 days in the upper room? When Christ passed within the heavenly gates, he was enthroned amidst the adoration of angels. As soon as... As the ceremony was completed, the Holy Spirit descended upon the disciples in rich currents, and the Christ was indeed glorified, even with the glory he had with the Father from all eternity. The Pentecostal outpouring was God's, was heaven's communication that the Redeemer's inauguration was complete. So the inauguration day was completed 50 days after the resurrection of Christ, right there on the day of Pentecost. It says, this was the signal, the token that he had as priest and king received all authority in heaven and on earth. Number one, the enthronement 
The inauguration of Jesus reminds us that Jesus is still in control. And number two, the inauguration of Jesus was what allowed the Holy Spirit to be poured out. I found it interesting this week as I was preparing for this message to to realize that we did 10 days of prayer here, just finished last night, and at the end of those 10 days, we had an inauguration here in America. But the disciples had 10 days of prayer back then, and it ended with an inauguration in heaven. I wish I could have been there for that one, right? We'll get to watch the video later, somehow, some way. Finally, the inauguration of Jesus reminds us that we are connected intimately and deeply to God. There was a Scottish theologian, Robbie Duncan. He said this, The dust of the earth sits on the throne of the universe. Now, he doesn't mean that in any disrespectful way. But when Jesus took on human flesh, he took it on forever. And so, God in Christ is able to better understand us now as king on the throne than he could have before. It just boggles the mind. He's more intimately connected to us now than he was before. I wish we could go to Hebrews 1. We don't have time. That's all about the enthronement of Christ also. But let's go to Hebrews 2 real quick before we close because there's some encouraging words that remind us how Deeply, Jesus understands you and how much he understands me. Hebrews chapter 2, and we're going to look at verse 9 and following. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, it says, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He's not ashamed to say, we're family. I know that person. I know their struggles. I'm identifying with them. Look at verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, verse 17, he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, that he might make an atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are also being tempted. Isn't that good news? Number one, the enthronement of Christ tells us and reminds us that Jesus is still in control. And it was through his enthronement, through his inauguration service, that the Holy Spirit was able to be poured out in ways that it wouldn't have been able to otherwise. And finally, it reminds us that we are deeply connected to our God and Savior sitting on the throne, who's not only our king, but he's also our high priest. Christ is king of the universe. He's king of this world. 
The question this morning I leave you with is, is he king of your heart? Does he sit upon the throne of your life? An easy way to find out the answer to that is in, in any aspect of life, who has the last word? Pray with me. Dear Father, dear Savior, dear King, dear Heavenly High Priest, we stand and sit before you just amazed at how good you are. And we are so grateful that even though our world is, is pretty chaotic at times, we're grateful that you are sitting upon the throne and you have awesome plans to come back soon and set all things right. But first, Lord, Again, this morning, we ask you to be the king of our hearts, the king of our lives. We know you identify with us. You were tempted. We are tempted. Please give us your power in our temptation. Give us your power and your wisdom in the difficulties we deal with. And may we remember during this week when we're discouraged, you're still there. You're on the throne. You're coming back. And you love us so much. Thank you, Father, for these things and so much more. In Jesus' name, let all God's people say, Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a happy Sabbath, and we'll see you soon.